Let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, might as well say, Would you be mine? Would you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? I'm so tempted to throw my shoe across from... I think that's very cool. You know that Mr. Rogers was a Presbyterian minister? I bet you didn't, but that explains, well, everything. (laughs) Hello, neighbors. Hey, we're we're going to be talking about what it means to love your neighbor today, but I, I cannot start my message without pausing for a moment to call out, to shout out, to point out, this is the first time you were the witnesses to the first ever rap in Chapel Hill worship. And I hope it it will not be the last. That was so cool. What you may not know is that Nick Phelps, our rapper, he's the newest member of our staff. He's the coordinator of our care ministries. If you call in to our care ministries, that's going to be the guy that you're uh, talking to. Wonderful believer, wonderful brother, and he writes all of this. So you can find him online, actually. He he is a uh, published rapper, I guess. So, I mean, I've listened to his stuff. I don't know how to describe it, but he is an enormous talent and I was back there loving it, and I love the buzz in this place when he was done. That was awesome. So I'm sure you're with me. I think if you come to Glow for Christmas, you might see another little version of that. So I hope you come. So we're in a series asking what it means for us to be for our neighbors. We talked for a long time about what it means to be for our city, and now we're we're narrowing in, we're zooming in a little bit, and asking what does it mean to be for our neighbors. Now you might say, why does this matter? Well, because Jesus said so. Jesus said being for our neighbors, loving our neighbors, it matters. When a religious lawyer asked him a question, what is the greatest commandment? His reply was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. He says the first essential thing for everyone is to love God with everything you have. If you don't have that, nothing else matters. But then he said, inextricably tied to, linked to, bound to this love is this love. Bound to vertical love of God is our horizontal love of neighbor. These two, he said, go together. You've got to have them both. You might be interested to know that there is no technical Greek word for neighbor. Actually, the word is literally the nearby one. The nearby one. And the most obvious definition is the simplest definition. Those who live nearby us. We're going to see today that neighbor can mean more than that. But surely it doesn't mean any less than that, does it? If Jesus, our Lord, the one we call master, said, I want you to love the nearby ones, surely that has to include those who are your right next door, literal flesh and blood neighbors, doesn't it? And if you're going to love your neighbors, what's the first step that you got to take? You got to know your neighbors. You got to know them, right? How can we love our neighbors? How we can serve our neighbors? How can we pray for our neighbors if we don't even know them? Which brings back the, the chart of shame. We introduced this this last week. You'll find it in your bulletin. Pull it out. And I gave this out to you this last week. Your assignment was to write down the names of all of your nearest eight neighbors in this chart. 
And if you weren't here last week, or if you lost this, or if you were naughty and threw it away, here it is again, because I want you to know I mean it. I really want you to do this thing. We're just blowing smoke if we say we're going to love our neighbors and we don't have a clue who they are. How can this be anything but the first step? Fill out this chart and say, these are the people that are living around me that God has called me to love. I'll show you the tune chart. Here it is. Typical overachievers. There's 18 names on there. But we decided we wanted the name of everybody that was on our block, on our cul-de-sac. So we put them all on there. And we taped it up to a a kitchen cupboard door, the inside of it, that we open the most often so that we can see it. We can memorize the names. We use it to remind, to pray for our people. So this is what we've done. I challenge you. I charge you. I implore you. Start here. This is our beginning place. For some of you, you might say, this is so simple. This is so silly even. I'll tell you this. For some of you who are real hospitable people, it might be. But for those of us who tend to be kind of introverted, who when we drive home at night, we drive into our castle and pull up the drawbridge behind us so that we can hunker down behind closed doors or walls, this actually is a huge first step in obeying Jesus and loving our neighbor. So I want to ask you, did you do it? Did you go out and and learn your neighbor's names and, and write them down? I heard one yes. Thank you for you. So apparently we have a little more work to do because there apparently there are some of you who said, yeah, I know Jesus said that, but he didn't really mean it, did he? I think he really meant it. What do you think greatest commandment means? That other than he really meant it. And when we turn to Luke's version of the story, because this commandment, the great commandment appears in three of the four gospels. When we turn to Luke's version of the story, we see how much he meant it. In vivid technicolor, because we now turn to what may be the greatest parable Jesus ever told. We find it in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Turn, if you would, into your pew Bibles or pull out your app. Keep it open because we're going to refer back to it throughout the message. We turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This sets the story up. All right, here we go. And behold, a lawyer stood up. To put Jesus to the test, always a bad idea, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right, let's just pause there for a moment. The lawyer's initial question is very self-serving. I mean, it is really all about him. He's saying, what are the boxes I need to check to make sure that I go to heaven? What must I do? What are the things I got to do to inherit eternal life? I just want to make sure I got all the boxes checked. Jesus flips the question right back on him. He says, well, what does the Bible say? You know the Bible. What does it say? And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, there you go. Bingo. You got it right. You answered correctly. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor with everything you have. You do these two things and you are good to go. 
The lawyer should have left well enough alone, but he didn't do it. He, he's going to press it. I mean, he got an A from the rabbi, right? He said, you have answered correctly. Who wouldn't want to hear that from the lips of Jesus? He said, you got it right, dude. But that's not enough. Because he wants to press in. And pretty quickly, we discover his motivation for asking this question. Because we are told that he continued on. He pressed on because he wanted to justify himself. What does that mean? It means... He wanted to know what the bare minimum was that he had to do to check off each one of those lit, uh, boxes. You see, clearly he felt confident with the God part. He doesn't ask any questions about that, does he? Most religious fundamentalists feel very confident with the God part. They got him nailed. They got him all figured out, they think. But then this bit about loving your neighbor, that's the part he wanted a little more clarity on. He wanted that nailed down. And so he asks a very revealing question. So, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And as we discover when Jesus' response, he doesn't like that question at all. So take a look at your text, and then let's, let's carry on in the story, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay it when I come back. Now Jesus continues. Now, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the men who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, teach us now uh, to be more and more like you, more like this Samaritan, but really more like you in our hearts towards those who need to be cared for, need love. Teach us what it really means to love our neighbor through this story, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jericho, anyone been to Jericho? Okay, one of you, two of you. It's it's a very cool town. It's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Jericho goes back thousands and thousands of years. It sits 850 feet below sea level, if you can imagine. And uh, it is built on an oasis, which means that it is verdant and green and lush and beautiful. At the time of Jesus, Jericho was a suburb of Jerusalem. In fact, it was the favorite bedroom community of the priests who worked in the temple, but didn't want to live in, in Jerusalem. Jericho was to Jerusalem like Gig Harbor is to Seattle. We may want to work there, but we don't want to live there. And so this was their bedroom community. The only difference is, though, the I-5 commute was 
dangerously treacherous. Why? Well, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, he dropped 3,200 feet from Jerusalem on a hill down to Jericho in a hole. And it was very thin, very narrow, windy, 18 miles long, surrounded on one side by cliffs and the other side by a drop-off. You can still see the the road today. In fact, you see an image up there. And there were caves that pockmarked all of the street along uh, along the, the way, the road along the way. And in these caves hid burglars, robbers, thugs, brigands who would prey upon the commuters as they were making their way up and down that road. It was an awful and dangerous place. Jesus knew that. And so he uses this well-known setting for his most well-known parable. A man is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And uh, we assume that he is a Jew, but we are not told that he is. We are told really nothing about him. And en route, he is attacked by this band of robbers who, who strip him and rob him and beat him and leave him in a coma. That's the word that describes him in the Greek. Fortunately, along comes a priest, a respected religious leader with great responsibility in the community. In our parlance, we might call him a senior pastor. And, and of course, we expect that this respected clergyman is going to have mercy on this poor fellow. Alas, without explanation, we are told that when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. When we imagine this to be a four-lane highway, that's one thing, but actually it was a very narrow road. So when we read, pass by on the other side, it probably looks something like this. That's what passed by on the other side meant. When we were talking about this Friday with my life group, one of the guys admitted with great chagrin he had done the very thing the day before in Seattle. There was a woman passed out on the sidewalk. And he said, I literally thought about crossing, crossing, and crossing so I wouldn't even have to deal with her. In the end, all I did was stepped over her without a word, without a touch, without so much as acknowledging that she was even there. He felt awful about passing her by. I wasn't in much better position, though, to respond. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in the uh, Spokane airport waiting to come home. And as I was sitting there, an older woman sat down next to me, and she was carrying a dog carrying case. And I thought, great. (laughs) A comfort dog. I've been on a lot of airplanes, and I have not found comfort dogs to be that comforting, honestly. I have some unpleasant memories with comfort dogs. And so, and this dog was already starting to yowl and yip and squirm around inside of there. And I thought, oh my gosh. He was obviously upset. And so the woman reaches over and she zips open the carrying case. And this is what I saw. It was an electronic comfort dog (laughs) that moves and barks and whimpers and yips and yowls. And then when you scratch its head, it quiets down. And I thought, isn't that sweet? (laughs) Poor woman is so stressed out over flying that she brought along an electronic comfort dog to keep her company. How clever. (laughs) Do you think that's what I thought? What I really thought was, this is nuts. This is the craziest thing I have ever seen. You have got to be kidding me. And then in the ultimate act of empathy, I snuck out my phone and snapped that picture. (laughs) 
because I didn't think you'd believe me if I didn't take the picture. And then, of course, I read this story. And I began to deal with some sense of shame. Because in that moment, like the priest in the story, I passed by on the other side of that woman. I didn't have any compassion to ask her, are you afraid of flying? Or is there anything else that I could do to make you more comfortable? I didn't take into consideration the possibility that she had Alzheimer's or that she had a a paralyzing phobia. I just passed by on the other side and snapped a memento along the way. (laughs) Not very heroic. Not very heroic. Jesus' listeners would have been as disappointed in the priest in the story. I mean, he, he should have been the hero of the story, the senior pastor, but he was not. Ah, But then comes the Levite. Levites were like associate pastors. They helped the priests. They helped the senior pastors do their thing. And you think, okay, this guy, he'll come through for us. And and likewise, he passes by on the other side. And again, they would have been very disappointed and very shocked, actually, because Levites were held in high regard in the religious community. So, two strikes against the religious folk. But you ain't seen nothing shocking yet. Because now appears the hero of the story, a Samaritan. Samaritans were the despised and shunned enemies of the Jews. You cannot understand how visceral their feelings were towards each other. It was a feud, if you can imagine, that went back for 700 years. It all started when the Assyrians invaded the Holy Land and and wiped out the ten northern tribes, and then they settled down in the area, and they intermarried with the Jewish survivors, and the children that resulted from that intermarriage were called Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They were impure, and so they were despised. They were loathed by the Jews for that reason. But that's not all. They also were considered heretics. Although they worshipped Yahweh, they worshipped him in the wrong way, on the wrong mountain, and in the wrong temple. And so the Jews hated and mistrusted the Samaritans, and they considered them religiously defective. It's hard for us to translate uh, how unsettling it would have been for the hero of this story being told by a Jewish rabbi to be a Samaritan man. But I want you to try I want you to use your imagination. Imagine the person whose politics you despise. Imagine the person who has done you dirt sometime in your life. Imagine the person who, as far as you're concerned, no integrity, and you disrespect them ultimately. Imagine the person that you would least want to be stuck in an elevator with. You got someone in mind? Nod your head when you do, because I got someone in mind. Now, make that person the hero of your story. Because that is how shocking and disgusting this would have been to Jesus' listeners, to have a Samaritan be the hero of the story. Unlike the two respected religious leaders who passed by on the other side, we are told that the Samaritan, when he saw the guy, stopped. And, and he got off his, his beast, which would have been in itself unsafe, right? I mean, where are the robbers? So he stops, he gets off. And he administers aid. He puts this poor man up on his own beast. He leads him to the end, and he picks up the entire tab. He even leaves the credit card and says, you can charge the balance of it, and I'll sign off when I come back. It would have been incredibly costly. 
incredibly inconvenient. And then that's the end of the shocking story. And then Jesus asks the stake in the heart question. He said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this poor man? The lawyer, the scribe, you notice he can't even bring himself to say the S word. He doesn't even say the Samaritan. He doesn't say it. He can't even say it. He only says the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus comes right back and says, you go and do likewise. I wonder if you notice that Jesus never asked the original question. The original question that started this whole thing off was when the lawyer said, who is my neighbor? Remember? Who is my neighbor? In other words, what he wanted, he said, tell me precisely to whom I must be nice so that I don't have to waste my niceness on the people that don't count. That is really what it's about here. Who do I have to be nice to in order to check off the boxes? What's the minimum effort that I need to put in to make sure that I'm in good standing with you? I don't want to waste any more effort beyond what is necessary. So tell me, who is the neighbor I got to love like myself? But Jesus turns the question right around on him, doesn't he? His new question is, who proved to be the neighbor? Who showed neighborliness to this poor man? The lawyer was asking for a noun. He said, I want you to define neighbor for me. Jesus makes it a verb. Who is the one who neighbored the victim? I want to bring this back around to what we've been talking around in our church in these last weeks and months. Learning your neighbor's name is a great first step, and it's an essential one. But then the next and necessary step is you've got to neighbor them. You've got to turn the noun into a verb. You need to reach out with an act of kindness. Loving your neighbor does not mean having squishy, warm, emotional feelings toward them. In fact, the Greek word for love in this passage and all of the great commandment passages is the same word. It's agape. And because you are great Greek scholars, I know you know, agape is the highest form of love in the Greek language. It is the active love. It is the initiating love. It is the generous love of God that God showed the world when he sent his only son. That was agape love. And Jesus said, I want you to love God that way, but I want you to love your neighbors with agape love. Neighbor love has to be agape. It's not about emotion. It's not about mushiness. It is selfless and it is active. It is a love that notices and a love that serves. If we know the names of our neighbors, but never take the initiative to care for them, never be kind to them, never do anything nice to serve them, how will they ever know that we love them? They can't read our hearts, our thoughts, our minds. And besides, what kind of a cheap, remote love is that anyway? Jesus said, agape your neighbor as much as you agape yourself. And by the way, that's a lot for most of us, because most of us agape ourselves just fine. So here is your next assignment, church. Now that you know your neighbor's names, as I know every one of you ran right out and filled this chart in, now that you know your neighbor's name, I charge you, I challenge you to begin to look for ways to agape them through an act of kindness. Maybe it means blowing the debris off of their street with your fancy blower. Maybe it means pulling their garbage can up for them or putting their newspaper on on their front porch. Maybe it means driving them to the doctor. Or taking your rake out when you see them raking leaves and helping out with that. Or picking up the trash in front of their house. Or asking if you can grab them something at the grocery store because you're already going over there. 
In order to love our neighbor, first of all, you've got to get to know who they are. And then you've got to serve them. That is what love is. That is what agape love is. And I want you to hear this. You serve them without ulterior motive. There is no spiritual bait and switch here. No expectation of a return on your spiritual investment. If I do this, then bam I got them. There are some of your neighbors who already know you're a Christian. They're already nervous about you because they're waiting for you to drop the hammer on them. I realized that I was being kind of Pharisee-like and some of my uh, neighbor loved the other day because I complained to my wife, Cindy, that I had done several nice things for our neighbors and they had never acknowledged it. They hadn't said thank you. They hadn't sent me a note like my mother taught me to do. They had done nothing to acknowledge what I'd done for them. And Cindy said, so what? Bad pastor, bad pastor. Of course she's right. So what? Agape love means serving selflessly without having your hand out waiting for a tip. One of your fellow worshipers got this last week. They got a jump start on you. She uh, wrote an email to me that afternoon and said that she felt convicted in my sermon because after three years of living in the neighborhood, she had never made any effort to get to know her neighbors. So this is the rest of what she wrote to me that afternoon. She said, I must confess that while you were still talking, I began to look up muffin recipes. Don't do that, by the way. My husband nudged me with a look of disapproval, but I insisted that my recipe search was related to the sermon and continued my hunt for the perfect fall muffin recipe. That afternoon, my family of five walked down our street and handed out apple muffins to our neighbors and introduced ourselves. We were pretty well received. But then we realized that we were walking around during the overtime of the Seahawks game. (laughs) Whoops, she said. At least everyone was home. So good for her. Good for her. Obviously, the story of the Good Samaritan broadens and shifts a little bit our definition of neighbor. But I'll just say this. If you cannot neighbor those who are closest to you, it is highly unlikely that you're going to tolerate the cost and the inconvenience of neighboring a stranger. If you can't neighbor the people that are right around you, you ain't going to neighbor a stranger. Don't kid anybody. And so I'm going to repeat what I said last week. Let us start obeying Jesus' great commandment by loving and serving our literal right-next-door neighbors. Let's start there. And I want to celebrate every little victory. Because some of us are going to, we're developing some new muscle memory here. And so I want to celebrate this memory and to be able to celebrate what God is doing through our whole church. So here's how we're going to do it. A couple of weeks ago at St. Andrew's weekend, We'll recall that every, a bunch of you came up and put a big blue sticker up on our map. The map of our region saying, this is where I live. And, and in so doing, I said, you're committing yourself to before your city and before your neighborhood. And so that was the starting point. You're kind of laying claim to that. All right, now I get, I'm going to give you another sticker. And it's a very colorful one. I'm going to give you an orange sticker. You'll find them out there. Here's what I want you to do. Every time you intentionally do something to love your neighbors, where you said, I'm going to do this on purpose. Maybe it means 
learning their names and writing them down, putting the chart up on your kitchen cupboard wall. Or maybe it means raking their lawn or maybe taking apple muffins to them in the afternoon. Whatever it means. Every time you do one of those, I want you to sneak over to that map and take one of those orange stickers and stick up a little orange uh, sticker to, to celebrate that moment. It's just as a, a witness to say, I'm, I'm trying to love my neighbors. Now, no one's going to know it. You're not going to write your name on it, so it's not like braggadocia or anything. Just quietly stick that sticker up. And every time you do it, I want you to do it again. Here's what I hope. I hope that that map will turn from black to orange. I hope that we'll see growing, growing, growing. The orange glow that reflects the heart of this church that are saying more and more, we are going to find ways to serve our neighbors, to love our neighbors as we have never done before. When you leave today, if you did this, if you acted in any way on this, I invite you to make your way over there, stick a little orange sticker up there and claim a little bit more of the kingdom for Jesus. I want to close by turning back to a very disturbing and very telling description that we read of the lawyer just at the beginning of the, of the parable. We read that he desired to justify himself. He asked this question because he wanted to make himself feel good. He wanted to justify himself before God. And I think that these words are actually a stark warning to all of us about how and why we love our neighbors. It is not, despite what I complained about to my wife this week, it is not so that we will be noticed by them. It is not so that we will show off. And it is certainly not about justifying ourselves before God, about making ourselves more acceptable in the eyes of God. Why do we do this? We love our neighbors because God first loved us. That is what compels us to do this. We're not just checking off the boxes of good behavior. We're not trying to come up with a minimal list of requirements in order for us to make our way into heaven. Jesus came to earth to make us his neighbors, to love us in ways that we had never been loved before, to raise us up to new life like the Samaritan did, that poor, helpless, broken man on the side of the road. You understand, don't you? Jesus was the Samaritan to us, for every one of us was broken in that fashion. And he came to us and lifted us up. In our own strength, we actually can never accomplish what the great commandment calls us to do. In our own strength, we can never love our neighbors more than we love ourselves. We love ourselves too much. But Jesus did. He did perfectly. He loved us more than he loved himself because he gave up his life for us. And when we recognize that, when we receive that love, it empowers us to love our neighbors for the right reason. Not for check boxes, not for credit. Unlike that poor lawyer, we don't have to justify ourselves before God. Jesus has already done that. So relax. Love God with everything you have. And agape your neighbors as much as you agape yourself. We can't do this, Lord, without you. And so we pray in your kindness, in your mercy, that you would give us your heart. The heart that left heaven and came to earth and pitched your tent in our midst, the heart that was willing to serve instead of be served, the heart that was willing to die, to shed your blood, to save us from our sins, and to set us free for all of eternity. May that compel us to love our neighbor. Not to check off boxes, not to get credit, but as an expression of gratitude for the one who came chasing after us to love us well. Jesus, thank you for loving us that much. And would you help us to stop being selfish 
Would you help us to take the religion that we have in our heads and put it into our hands in such a way that this community of ours is, is transformed? We ask you to do that.